blockchain is a technology where multiple parties, multiple interested parties can create, can store, and access records in an immutable fashion and everybody can look at the same version of the truth at the same time. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the University of Chicago's Center for Municipal Finance at the Harris School of Public Policy. And we are Sponsored, of course, by Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my intrepid co-host, Bonafide Fiscal Policy Wonk and Chicken Connoisseur, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And I just want to say a, a happy anniversary to my mother and father-in-law. Their anniversary was this past weekend on April 15th. Incidentally, fun kind of finance-related story is that, uh, can you guess why they chose April 15th as their anniversary? Oh, I would hope it had something to do with tax day. They sure did. <laughs> and uh, uh, my father-in-law especially <laughs> has said that uh, with April 15th being tax day, uh, it would definitely reinforce him rem also remembering his anniversary. And incidentally, <laughs> not the only couple I have come across that has picked April 15th for that very reason. So smart move there by, by those folks. That's brilliant. I, I like your in-laws already. Sounds like my kind of, my kind of people. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, we are... Uh, here today to talk about technology in the municipal finance world and, and certainly a theme that we get into on this podcast a lot. And we want to talk about a particular kind of technological advancement, and that is blockchain and its applications in municipal finance. We hear a lot in the world of blockchain about uh, cryptocurrencies and NFTs and all sorts of other uh, applications of those uh, different types of applications that leverage um, blockchain technology. And this not being a technology podcast, we're not going to get deep into the weeds on what blockchain is and, and exactly how it works. But I do think it is an important set of questions about what it means for public finance writ large. And we're fortunate to have uh, joining us today, Steve Winterstein from Alpha Ledger, which is a, a firm that's been doing quite a bit of work in that space, specifically around the municipal bond market. And he's going to unpack for us what he sees as the emerging trends with respect to blockchain and its application in the municipal finance world. Now, this is um, one of those topics, Liz, I think that we we both have some experience in. It's obviously very new still, uh, but I think we've both been kind of following it from the beginning, including and especially when it wasn't all that well known exactly what it was or what we should think of it. As I recall, that's been your experience kind of early and often with uh, blockchain applications in municipal finance. Is that fair to say? Yeah, definitely. I sort of became Governing Magazine's de facto blockchain reporter back in seven, 2017 when, uh, when they wanted to do a feature story on blockchain because it kept coming up. And they looked over at me and they're like, hey, Liz is good at explaining weird, complicated stuff. Let's have her do it. Uh, I knew nothing about blockchain back then other than it was a word that people were saying a lot. So um, I feel like I started at negative one in terms of the learning curve there. Um, but that's probably how a lot of us feel, actually. And so the big challenge there was that I had this feature story about blockchain. What is it? And, and what are governments thinking about it? And the, I think the hardest part of that story, it's how do you talk about it in a way that people can really understand? 
so that was like challenge number one was trying to understand and then report on blockchain and uncover and explain uh, how governments were thinking about it. But back then, I think the the, the where blockchain was at was um, just kind of discovering the different ways in which it could be, benefit government operations other than, hey, let's start using cryptocurrency. And what stood out to me back then, I think the most was the idea of using it in land records. And in Cook County, they were going through a pilot test, I suppose, of putting land records, uh, property deeds on the blockchain. And it was in part spurred because there was a problem at the time of scammers claiming to own these vacant abandoned lots that the city had actually seized and selling them off for 10,000, 15,000, 20 grand to unwitting purchasers who then realized quickly after the scammer left that they didn't actually own this property that that uh, they had the this fake deed for. Blockchain, because it is immutable, it is secure, there is only one copy of that deed. There's no way to make another copy of it um, to fake it. Blockchain is one way that you could not only make a secure land land record, but have everything about that record in one spot. Um, so I did that feature in 2017, and then blockchain kind of went away, and then it comes back again a few years later, and I have to brush up again on it. But that's sort of what blockchain has been like, I think, for, in my personal experience, and so far as I can see with government. And it's it comes up every once in a while and there's like all these possibilities but it is it's super complicated and as we all know government is not like the fastest on the uptake with technology so this is something that's like i think decades down the line at this point i hope i'm wrong but it's um it's one of those fascinating things that could really transform government but at this point people have been saying that for like almost 10 years so we'll see when that happens <laughs> Yeah, there's been a lot of headwinds, right? And certainly every time you hear about <clears throat> the, the price of Bitcoin going through the roof and a lot of the, the you know sage wisdom folks in the markets will say, there's no reason for that. This must be uh, a scam. This must be a problem. There's there's no there there. You know, all of that really doesn't help with the, you know, the image, with the branding, so to speak, of the technology and causes kind of additional concerns among governments, which mm -hmm. not only are slow to adopt technology, but are also by nature very conservative. They have to be by nature very conservative when you're talking about protecting public resources and public investments. And so there's been all sorts of red flags raised over time. That doesn't help. Um, and yet we hear about some remarkable opportunities that have come up in in uh, both the, the private sector and the nonprofit sector. And maybe there is an opportunity for state and local governments to capitalize on the kinds of opportunities that that blockchain might present for it and that's a very important topic and the thing that we wanted to spend some time helping our listeners to understand well we are pleased to welcome to the public money pod steve winterstein who is the head of capital markets at alpha ledger markets and a, a long-time, well-respected voice in all things having to do with the municipal bond market. Steve, welcome to the Public Money Pod. It's great to be with you. Thanks, Justin. 
Steve, we're here to talk about blockchain, and it's it's something that you and I have discussed before. And I think when I first started reporting on blockchain, um, I found one of the hardest things about it was to explain what it is in, in a short amount of time. So <laughs> our first challenge to you is to is to try to try to do that for our listeners. What's like the third grade uh, level explanation of of blockchain? Sure. Uh, I'm glad to dive in. Before we get started, I, I need to uh, give a quick disclaimer. Uh, my comments uh, should not be considered uh, an investment rec recommendation regarding any security. My comments are solely for informational purposes and not to be construed as an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy a security in any state. And I'm expressing my own opinions and my statement should not be construed as reflecting the view of Alpha Ledger markets or Alpha Ledger technologies. So there, I got that out of the way. Um, <laughs> the way that I always looked at blockchain is I equated it with cryptocurrency. And cryptocurrency and blockchain seemed to me to be used uh, interchangeably. And they meant the same thing as far as I could tell. And after I joined Alpha Ledger June of last year, I started to really uh, unpack the differences between the two. And uh, the way that I think of it is analogous to what we use as a search engine like Google or, or Safari. And the search engine is simply one application of the internet. So I think of it like there's this technology out there, and let's think of that as blockchain itself, distributed ledger. And then there is, um, there is application of that technology, and one application is cryptocurrency. There are many other applications uh, in terms of blockchain. So I think of blockchain as really just a, a, a more effective way, a more secure way uh, to manage data. So let's talk about the technology itself, and it is encrypted technology, which means that uh, when you create a record on blockchain, whether it's a transaction, it could be a bond transaction, or it could be any piece of information. When you create that on blockchain, uh, you have what is called a genesis record. And once that record is made, it's immutable. It can never be changed. It can be added to. It can be corrected. If, if there are mistakes in that record, it can be altered in the future by amending it, but it can't ever be changed. So we have a full record of the original uh, Genesis entry, and that is an immutable, an immutable record. So let's say, for example, I want to enter my name and I misspell my last name by transposing two letters. I can never undo that. It is permanently recorded as that error. But... I want to go in and I want to change my name to the correct spelling. I can do that. And anyone looking at the history of my name can see how it, how it ended up today, where it is. And you can immediately see, Liz, where, where that uh, can be very useful in the recording of different information in the securities market, uh, knowing a complete provenance, we call that, a complete provenance of every record that's immutable and going back to the creation of the original or Genesis record. The way I like to think of it is blockchain is a technology where multiple parties, multiple interested parties can create, can store, and access records in an immutable fashion. And everybody can look at the same version of the truth at the same time. So to go a little bit further with that, Steve, so 
speaking of the application side of this, so let's maybe take it first from the uh, from a muni investor's perspective, for instance. When you think about the applications that you all are working on and that, that others are working on in the industry of how this technology can be useful for the municipal bond market, what from what what, what sorts of what they might call, I guess, use cases or uh, business problems or types of challenges uh, is this technology most potentially useful in, in thinking about the muni market in particular? So let's start off with creating uh, an actual security itself. Uh, on chain and record actually recording it. So where we see application is in uh, the origination of an underwriting, for example, a bond deal. And let's say that bond deal has 30 uh, maturities, 29 serial bonds and a term bond at the end. And each one of those is an individual security that has a QSIP. From the moment that security is underwritten, it, it's birthed, right? It's born. All the terms and conditions of that security can get created on chain, uh, recorded on chain. Uh, that's our genesis record. And then if we look through the, the life of that security, we can see uh, things like if there is a sinking fund and some of it is redeemed. If there's a call, if there is an, uh, nowadays a current refunding, but five years ago, an advanced refunding, uh, we can look at all of these different, uh, we'll call them corporate actions that could occur. And we see a world where in terms of a smart contract overlay, uh, technology that tells that, that security what to do and when, you could see a world where payments are made. You could see a world where yield calculations could be made on chain within that, within that security. You know, a sinking fund can be actively recorded in that in that security where it can calculate the average life. And as each day ticks by, that contract related to that security actually makes those calculations. So there are a variety of, of applications um, overlaying smart contracts on top of a blockchain. But where I see particular interest is in the actual fields of the security itself. Let's think in terms of reference data. So we know who the big providers are out there for the terms and conditions of, uh, of bonds. And we, as a, an investing community, buy those, the, that information from the different uh, vendors, the, the different purveyors. What we could see is a world where you're creating this so-called reference data on-chain right at the origination of it. So we're getting it right from the OS, right from the notice of sale. We're cre actually creating a security. We're creating that uh, record and we're storing it on chain. And those who contribute to that process have unfettered access to that data. And so that creates a more um, a democratic process in both creating and accessing uh, security reference data. And we see that as a possible solution in the future as a use case. Makes sense. And as someone who has spent lots of money over the years uh, acquiring that reference data, what you're saying is uh, music to my ears. <laughs> Very excited. <laughs> that alone, I would encourage you to strong to, to pursue. So now at the risk of oversimplifying, Steve, it sounds a little bit like what you're describing here would be, uh, if you think about what uh, DTC, the depository trust company and others do, it's sort of like that type of information and record keeping, albeit, but albeit with a lot more functionality and a lot more transparency and access. And it sounds like maybe even better security too, based on what you're saying. Is that a, f a fair way to think about it? 
I think it's absolutely a fair way to think about it. And I, I would take it uh, a step further. Here's something to think about. Right now in today's world, let's, let's just use a, a three-party system uh, where transactions occur. So let's suppose that there is an asset manager. There is a broker-dealer that is selling securities to that asset manager. And then uh, there's also a custodian. Uh, for that asset manager. Say, for example, that uh, I buy a security. I'm the asset manager and I buy a security from a dealer. I affirm that trade and we compare the, the numbers, the price in, the total dollars, accrued interest and so forth. That's a version of the truth. And we are we are done on that trade. Well, even if I'm doing it electronically, something can can run amiss a where I may fat finger a number on my ticket entry or whatever the case may be, or if I'm using the telephone, somebody can hear something wrong or fat finger it on their end, and all of a sudden we have a new version of the truth, right? I'm confirming with the dealer. Now I'm confirming with the, the asset manager what's going to get, or with the custodian rather, what's going to get delivered in. And now the dealer is delivering that bond into the custodian, and they may have another version of the truth. And this, this actually happens. And now we got to go back and we have to figure out who made the error, what the real truth is. And usually we start with the dealer and the asset manager comparing those numbers again. And then we do a round robin and we go around and make sure that everybody has the same numbers. And that can cause problems. It causes trade errors. It means we have to cancel and rebuild things and so on and so forth. One potential solution, and Justin, this is exactly what you were just uh, referring to. If you think about fewer problems, you think about um, everyone seeing the same thing at the same time in terms of clearing, settlement, and so on and so forth. All of a sudden, if the asset manager, the dealer, and the custodian are all operating in the same network on the, on the same blockchain, and they are all nodes with access to that information, Everybody sees the same truth at the same time. What I think is going to happen is that trade errors are going to, to, to drop precipitously. I also think that it's going to be much easier to move toward T plus one, which is where things seem to be heading, and, and shorten that settlement period without all of the potential for mistakes. What's the being quick made. definition of T plus one? Sorry. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Trade, trade date plus the next day until settlement. Got it. Thanks. Sorry, Justin. No, no, good. that's a good question. And so I suppose, Steve, then as an extension of that, if I'm an issuer who's about to go into the market with a new issuer, I'll then have access to much better pricing data, certainly for to the extent that there's information available about comparable securities and just, a, just more visibility and transparency in real time overall. Is that fair to say? Yeah, if, if, if an issuer is a node on chain, then yeah, they would have access to their own data. Think of how helpful that could be uh, in terms of accessing their own uh, bonds that are out in the market right now to see where the yields are. But also with the power of, of AI and neural networks uh, overlaid on top of that, uh, you can start to use uh, clustering, for example, or neural networks to start to look at, uh, at comparable uh, issuers. Uh, and if you're a state that's rated AA, you can then see where your bonds traditionally have been priced relative to other AA states. If there are a lot of transactions in the marketplace, you can start to look at that as, uh, 
a guideline to where maybe your borrowing costs would be. Another advantage that I've heard of uh, there being for municipal issuers, if they were to issue uh, securities using blockchain, is that it would be cheaper for them overall to do so. Is that is that true, or is it is it more complicated than that? Well, that's Liz. That's a, that's a generalization, and I'd say it's more complicated than that. We do see a world in which borrowing costs should come down because of transaction costs, right, and and uh, underwriting costs, and so on and so forth. I don't think you're going to eliminate that, and I think there's still a lot of uh, room for this to be profitable. But we've certainly seen underwriting spreads come down over the last decades. Uh, because of technology. And I think that's probably uh, an irreversible path, uh, giving more people access uh, to more and more transparency. Uh, We certainly saw that in the secondary market when real-time transaction reporting uh, became into effect. I want to say it was 2004 when we started doing real-time transaction reporting with MSRB. We've seen a trend of narrowing spreads over the last several decades. You know, I I would add that, and, and it's nothing that Justin, you and Liz don't know, and and that is that the municipal market is very slow to adopt new technologies. Breaking news here on the public money. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of think of I think of the municipal market as being probably ten to fifteen years behind the corporate bond market, and the corporate bond market is probably ten years behind the equity markets. So, if you want to see what's going to happen. In our market, all you need to do is look at what's happening in the equity markets. Think about it in the context of new measures of risk, for example. I love to look at that as a guideline. We're still spreading yields to a benchmark yield curve in nominal yields. We're still doing many of the things that we've been doing for the last 30, 40, 50 years in our market. I think the same is true with technology. And and we hear this time and time again in, in public finance and in the municipal market, both on the dealer side and the buy side. All of a sudden, the technology comes to market and people say, I wish you could do this. I wish you could do that. I wish you. And, and we are in, in, in a revolutionary period right now with blockchain. And I think what, what will happen is those that decide that they want to get out in front of it and help be part of the solution, they're actually going to help craft the solution that works in their environment and in their workflow. And we're interested in, in partnering with those uh, types of firms, those types of thought leaders uh, to come up with solutions that the, the market can deploy right now. Because I think the technology is there right now. It's figuring out the application and finding people that want to jump into the pool with us. Yeah. And speaking of of other applications, I have written about or around the use of blockchain in other other areas of muni finance. Like I think the one most people listening to this podcast maybe have heard of the most about is using cryptocurrency and mares getting paid in cryptocurrency and that kind of thing. But there have been other applications that I know that some places have experimented with and like Cook County was looking at using blockchain uh, for its property tax records, things like that. And so what what kind of other ways could municipalities use the blockchain technology, like not even thinking about cryptocurrency here, to improve their operations? Well, certainly um, the things that you mentioned, Liz, and things like paying for public transportation, Right. The same app that hits the MTA, I mean, it could hit your wallet, your uh, Bitcoin wallet, or your, it could hit ETH and pay for it that way. 
You also could think about application, for example, uh, when, a, when a police officer pulls you over for a traffic violation and you show that police officer your registration, your license, you're giving information that that police officer may not need to know. Uh, for example, your home address. You, you may not need to know your birth date, your, uh, you know, all the other things that are very personal information. Uh, what they what they really need to know is that you are legally registered in that state to drive. That's what they need to know. That's all they need to know, right? And they need to know that your car is registered, and if there's a state inspection, that it's inspected. All the other information is really uh, superfluous to that traffic violation. And so if you think of it on distributed ledger, that when a police officer pulls you over and they type in your license plate, they can just get, yeah, you're, you're good. The car's registered in that person's name, and they've handed a driver's license and an insurance card that clears. I see that kind of application in medical records. I see that application in all, all manner of areas in sales tax, in tax collections, in all different kinds of areas that state and local governments are involved where they need to know a specific amount of information, but where we're, we're giving them a lot more than what they need to know for that specific application. So Steve, we've talked a lot about the, the possibilities here with respect to blockchain, and certainly there are some naysayers and some critics and from some of the big professional associations in the state and local finance world, including and in particular the Government Finance Officers Association, you know, some clear statements uh, to the effect of let's maybe not only wait and see, but let's wait and see for a long time to, on how some of this technology evolves. You know, what's the, do you all have a response to, to that, given that obviously those are very influential organizations with respect to the, the issuer and the, the government finance perspective on how this is going to develop? Yeah, I certainly understand their concerns. I think they may be misinformed. And uh, I think the lack of depth of understanding in terms of what blockchain actually is, uh, the application of cryptocurrency as one, uh, one use of that technology, I think those things get conflated. And when they get conflated, I think um, it's a safer bet to say, look, you shouldn't do this. You should avoid this. This is going to be a kind of thing where it happens very slowly and then all of a sudden, uh, like many technologies do. I can tell you that most people before the pandemic had never really used Zoom or Teams. Uh, we knew how to FaceTime, but other than that, that was about it. And then all of a sudden, uh, it happened. And when it happened, uh, it was a flood. It was a, a deluge. And the same thing is happening right now with, for example, artificial intelligence and machine learning. You know, we, we, we hear and read about chat uh, GPT. Uh, and everybody's getting a demo of that on their on their phone and playing around with it, and it's accelerating. And I think the same thing is going to happen in terms of deployment of blockchain. Do I think it's sexy? No, I really don't. I, I don't think the municipal market is going to wake up one day and say, oh my gosh, what happened? I just don't think that's going to happen. It's It's going to be adopted. And uh, as it starts to get traction, I think it's going to accelerate. And then we're going to wake up one day and we're going to say, oh, yeah, sure. We use Hyperledger Fabric. We use, you know, whatever company is delivering blockchain for public finance. Yeah, we've just decided to migrate to that in, in that direction. And we've had some very positive experience with that, um, you know, boots on the ground 
uh, in the last year that I've been at, at Alpha Ledger, or 10 months that I've been at Alpha Ledger, we've had some uh, major public finance firms put their uh, put their toe in the water and say, you know, we, we agree with you. We think it's the technology of the future, and we'd like to start to uh, test and, and determine use cases for us. And that's been a lot of fun for us to work through. And uh, I think that's going to continue, and I think it's going to accelerate. It's going to be good for our business, but it's going to be good for the market. Because if there's one thing that our market is lacking, it's a repository of good, clean, reliable, consistent data and the transmission of that data in a very democratic fashion. Right. Speaking of which, uh, on, a, on a very specific type of issue, we've talked on multiple occasions now on the Public Money Pod about the Financial Data Transparency Act, the FDTA, and what that would do for financial reporting for state and local governments. And at some level, Steve, what you just described is is what that piece of legislation intends to do with respect to state and local government financial information, what you now currently find in PDFs uh, of comprehensive, or I'm sorry, uh, annual comprehensive financial reports, ACFRS. Uh, given where you're at uh, from your vantage on all things technology as they relate to state and local public finance, what do you think of the FDTA and and its uh, and its potential? Well, I've been listening to both sides of the argument. Proponents from from either side are are convinced that the other side has it wrong. I probably fall down in the middle. I think we need something. But I agree that uh, a one-size-fits-all solution is going to be difficult. The regulators are going to do a a sensible job in figuring out the right way to tackle this. And while nobody has mentioned specifically XBRL as what the solution is going to be, I think if you took a straw poll that most people would say that that seems to be the direction it's headed. So what does that mean for blockchain? I look at it as the taxonomy is really important with with everything that we're going to do with financial statements, but but it it, will, it can extend beyond financial statements to um, to the transfer agents, to the clearing uh, firms, and so on and so forth. All of that um, is directly applicable to blockchain technology, and so I see XBRL if that in fact is the technology that that is decided as an overlay or a a layer in between blockchain technology and the issuer actually creating that issue. They would use the taxonomy, enter it into XBRL, XBRL could actually record on chain, and then you would have a permanent record. And as things change with, you know, 15C212, continuing disclosure, corporate actions, everything to do with that security goes into that portal uh, using XBRL and all the taxonomy that is developed can get recorded on chain. I wouldn't be surprised at all, uh, and I'm not suggesting that they're moving this direction, but if in three to five years, I wouldn't be surprised to, to hear that MSRB is taking all of its data on EMMA and, and, and moving it to a relational database on chain. And once again, from the standpoint of researchers who often have to either hand collect or buy these data, what you're saying sounds very, very exciting. I think it will be, but I don't think it's going to be sexy. I think, <laughs> I think we're talking about I think we're talking about database management here. You know, database, <laughs> right, right. It's not something that we can all get you know whipped up about. Uh, but I think it's the future, and and I think it's it's going to be one of those. You know, right now when we access a database, we don't we don't say, well, I wonder if this is SaaS or SQL. 
We just we, we type in a, a query and it comes to us, right? Uh, whether you're using a mainframe or a network. I think what we're going to see is the same application with blockchain in public finance. I think that you could see other uh, vendors um, start to record their data and and we know all know who they are. Um, I, I think you could see migration of other vendors. It just makes total sense to me, whether it's evaluators, reference data providers, yield curve providers, pricing. All of this makes sense to be have a genesis record and have a complete provenance with the possibility of overlaying smart contracts on top of it. It just makes total sense. We and our listeners, I'm sure, think it's sexy. Leave it at that. Well, we really appreciated the conversation with Steve Winterstein, head of capital markets at Alpha Ledger Markets. Steve, thanks so much for, for taking the time to join us and talk through these things that are uh, both technologically sophisticated, but also uh, really at the end of the day, pretty accessible and uh, really foundational kinds of issues uh, that I'm sure are of interest to our listeners. Thanks again. Well, Liz and Justin, thanks for having me. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks again to Steve Winterstein. That was such a, a really informative conversation. Um, and I feel like every time we talk about blockchain, I learn like at least 10 things and, and remember five. So every time it's progress. And this is definitely one of those times. Hopefully I'll remember more than five in a couple of days. But I wanted to bring up a for this week's Ripped from the Headlines, I wanted to bring up a story I saw a little while ago um, on Cointelegraph.com, which no, not surprisingly covers blockchain technology and cryptocurrency in particular. So this story is by Turner Wright, and it's titled Arizona Governor Vetoes Bill Targeting Taxes on Blockchain Node Hosts. And in this case, a blockchain node is, I guess, best thought of as um, a place where blockchain transactions can occur. People can run them out of their homes, which is uh, the what the particular type of operation that's targeted in this bill. And to me, I suppose, this is probably like super, super simple, but the easiest way in my mind to think about it is is like a store in, in a mall. It's it's one place where a transaction can occur. Um, I'm sure all the, the blockchain experts out there are like rolling their eyes at that, that analogy. But for us, for us laymen, um, that helps me sort of understand what is a blockchain node. So Katie Hobbs, the governor of Arizona, vetoed legislation that would have stopped local authorities from imposing taxes on individuals and businesses who run these blockchain nodes um, in a residence. And and so um, I think what this brings up is something that we haven't gotten to yet, which is taxation and regulation of blockchain. And I think that is that is like the big thing that governments will consider any type of new technology is the fact that it is a new tax revenue source. And especially when everything is moving to the digital world, that means the, the old tax revenue structure of physical things is becoming less and less valuable. And so governments have tried, have looked at taxing crypto, cryptocurrency earnings. They, they certainly do that. But this reminds me, you know, states and localities have, have also looked at this, this issue. Um, pensions have, to some extent, uh, in a very, very, very small way, I don't want to overstate this at all, have invested small amounts of money in funds that try to make money off of blockchain or cryptocurrency. So this is definitely 
something that governments see as as a place to start jumping into. And we've talked about how blockchain is like a, a very long way off. However, cryptocurrency has made a, a big, big jump over the last 10 years. It is now much more mainstream than it was. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that the more governments can start talking about this now, the sooner or the more prepared they'll be when this does become more established at some point. And, and I think hopefully localities especially are thinking of when things like Airbnb came out and it started cutting into their lodging taxes when Uber came out and it started cutting into taxi um, revenue, you know, things like that governments were really, really, really years behind um, in reacting to, to that, those new technological developments. And I think what we're seeing here is blockchain, especially over the last four or five years, I'd say in, in reporting on state and local governments, looking at this technology, it seems to be there. They seem to be reacting a little more quickly this time. So uh, what, what kind of things were you thinking about when you, when you saw the story, Justin? Yeah, I think those are all great points and I'm glad you, you brought this to our attention. It, and, and I, I think absolutely correct with respect to the how and when state and local governments react to these kinds of new businesses and the way that they do or do not interact with the existing tax structure. One of the things that's really interesting with blockchain technology is that it, it's all of that. It's a new revenue source. It's a, it's a new type of service. It's a new type of you know potentially investment security or a host in exchange for investment securities. So it interacts with the traditional economy in all those ways. But it also, in so many ways, can be a source of wear and tear on local infrastructure. If you look at the way that these uh, Bitcoin mining operations work, right? They they take a lot of electricity. There's a, there's a lot of um, sort of service demand that's generated locally. Now, some of that is is going to be paid for through you know utility bills and and that kind of fee for service that a lot of the especially the utility services are are covered. But then there just raise that kind of bigger question of is there something else that needs to happen at the local level then to support those kinds of services? And you can make the case that there's any number of new, you know, public safety or security or, you know, whatever types of local services might be, might be needed to host those kinds of services in your community. And in that case, is it fair to tax them at the local level? Clearly Arizona is saying no, that this is really a state level. There's not that kind of local impact and therefore we ought to, get out of the way and, and let the market sort this self out. But that's in so many ways, the central question when we, when we see these kinds of new technologies, just as you were saying, how do we regulate it? Do we tax it? Do we not tax it? Does the way we tax it affect the way that that, that, that uh, industry grows? And given how quickly this technology has evolved, this is exactly the kind of question that states and localities are struggling with, are going to continue to struggle with. And then as you were saying, have, the additional challenge of maybe potentially benefiting from this technology in a lot of ways. So you don't want to tax it in a way that takes away the potential opportunities for you as a government. So it really is a difficult policy dilemma. And we're starting to see exactly these kinds of debates. Arizona clearly is on one end of that continuum, which is to say we mostly want to get out of the way and let the market do its thing. Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, 
Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.